Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode is that atypical film known as Return to Oz. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and this is one of my many heads that I wear (laughs) on a daily basis. I have a big closet I switch around between, you know, it depends on how I feel that day. I, I, you know, I've, I noticed that about you, actually. <laughs> oh, hello. I am Brian, and uh, I, I also can't sleep. I, I feel you, Dorothy. <laughs> yes, welcome, everybody, to uh, the final episode of our Disney season. Brian can't believe it. it's, it's ending here. Um, and, you know, we always promise A for atypical to end a season. And... Right. Um, we're talking about Return to Oz today, and uh, of the Disney catalog, I think you can very much agree with me that um, this is not typical as a Disney production. <laughs> no, this is uh, this is a quite a strange film. <laughs> One of the most fitting we could have picked for for an atypical, I think. Right, honestly, because that's when we decided on Disney. I was insistent like this has to be the A for atypical because like. Right. The thing is, with a lot of the other potential choices for this, it's kind of movies that could, you know, still f- conceivably have been made by Disney at some point, I think. Right. Like yeah. ones that we were vaguely contemplating. But with Return to Oz, it feels so incredibly odd, despite the fact that obviously this is adapted from the L. Frank Baum stories and characters and whatnot. And on paper, Oz seems like perfect for Disney, to the degree that, like, there's a weird history with Disney and Oz, uh, basically. Back in the 1930s, Walt Disney himself had wanted to make a Wizard of Oz uh, adaptation as pretty much like the second animated feature after Snow White. But then MGM scooped up the rights and made a film with Judy Garland no one remembers at all. (laughs) At all, an iconic and classic film that has still kind of arguably clouded any other film adaptation, including this one. Right. Yeah, I mean... I guess to to kind of talk very briefly about The Wizard of Oz, like, one of the greatest films of of all time. Indisputable, I think. Even, like, as someone who... I watched that movie for the first time, like, a few years ago, and I was like, oh, this is good. And then I rewatched it, like, last year, I believe. And I was like, oh, no, no, this is, like, one of the, like, five greatest movies ever made, I think. It is just an unbelievably beautiful movie that, like, really, like, wins you over. It's it's this weird thing of we'll talk about the various like attempts to make a sequel, make a other stuff in the the Oz verse, I guess. Um, yeah, it's it's very weird. But I mean, what is your kind of relationship to the Wizard of Oz? I think it's much more traditional in terms of like I saw it when I was a little kid, 
And right. I loved it. It was probably one of the first movies I remember being obsessed with as a, mm-hmm. a small child, just because, like, I watched it constantly on VHS. It was definitely one, like, I remember, you know, I was sort of, like, permeating a lot of, like, my childhood. Like, I remember my dad took me to traveling musical show that like went from like city to city that actually starred like eartha kit as the witch and mickey rooney as the wizard i remember seeing at a very young age um because uh you know i was just like in love with this movie and i think that's that's kind of the weird thing is that with the wizard of oz itself it's such a classic movie anybody would recognize you know just like yellowbrick road the judy garland's outfit as dorothy the various different versions of like the scarecrow tin man and lion like those specific designs the Wicked Witch, or, right? Like, right, The Wicked Witch, all that other stuff. It feels so inherently like memorable to anybody out there that, like, right. I, I wanted to watch more Oz movies and prep for this, but the trouble is that, like, 90% of the movies that are, like, <laughs> adapted from Oz are just, like, let's go as close as we can to the 1939 movie without getting sued. Like, to the degree that, like, right. Warner Brothers, who owns the rights now, made a fucking straight-to-video Tom and Jerry movie where they just put them... Into the Wizard of Oz. The same musical numbers, audio of Judy Garland, all the other actors and shit. It's just Tom and Jerry also are there. <laughs> right. It, yeah, it's a weird thing where, like, I, I only dug into kind of the, like, you know, the main f- kind of four movies that they've made of, like, you know, studio films that have been made based on this story. But I, I feel like most of it is just either parodies or, like, homages to that 19... 19- 39, right? 1939? Yes, 1939. To that, like, original movie, which is a weird, yeah, it's a weird thing to kind of get into, I think. Yeah, now, nearly 100 years later, it's still untouchable. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> I like, mean, yeah. aside from this movie, which decides, like, let's go back to the source material and do something a bit more, like, dark and upsetting, even though a lot of people talk about how the 1939 movie is scary, which it can be, especially if you're like you're a little kid, like the Wicked Witch, the Flying right. Monkeys, all that other shit. Like it, it, it genuinely can terrify a young kid because there's that sense of danger. And that's kind of what was so great about like L. Frank Baum's stories. Like if you go back and read any of them, like I've only read the first book, which I did back when I was in elementary school, and even then I okay. noticed like, oh, this is a lot darker. Like there's a whole sequence where like the Tin Man literally like mutilates a bunch of, like, creatures that are attacking them with his axe. Like, he chops them up and shit. Right. I mean, yeah, it it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when you read those, like, the grim fairy tales or any any of those kind of old, like, stories like that where, like, oh, these are a lot darker and, like, you know, grittier than you think because, like, yeah, we all think of The Wizard of Oz as this, like, and it is a very beautiful and, like, sweet and moving movie, but yeah, there is that kind of like, you know, fantasy stuff in there that kind of goes into a bit of a bit of horror at times, which is I, which is what's so interesting about that movie is that it is both like beauty and wonder and everything and also these weird creatures and this weird world and like, yeah, all that stuff. And distinctly also a very American world, because that's sort of the thing that a lot of people right. talk about. I do agree with it. It's like it's the, one of the few fantasy universes that doesn't feel based in like Britain or any of these other right. things. Culturally, L. Frank Baum like, very much made it like an American story with like a scarecrow and a tin man in particular, kind of like representing like farms and the industry, the Industrial right. Revolution. Um, and then Cowardly Lion, out of politicians. Oh! <laughs> boom! Roasted. Damn. 
Oh, that's the extent of our political commentary for the evening. But, um, but yeah, it's weird, especially because uh, the only other Oz thing I watched actually in prep for this was weirdly one I had not heard of. That's called Twentieth Century Oz from 1976. It's an Australian okay. movie, appropriate for Oz, and um, it's like a version of Oz it where Australia, it, uh, basically, <laughs> um, and. It's about, like, this young girl who's, like, a groupie for, like, a rock and roll band who, like, while she's, like, in the van that they're, like, driving around, like, she falls out of the car and then she has a fantasy of, like, being in Australia, but it's this weird version of Australia. Um, you know, the version of the Scarecrow is um, a surfer dude played by Bruce Spence of, like, the Mad Max movies. Oh, okay. like, the gyrocopter guy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> and then um, the version of a Tin Man is a heartless uh, mechanic. Uh, and then the version of the Lion is like this uh, wannabe biker dude. Um, it's it's very weird. It's a very odd film. But it feels still, it's at the same time, indebted to the 1939 movie at the same time. Which is like right. a, a big thing, obviously, to differentiate from A Return to Oz. Which, let's just jump into Return to Oz. Now let's play the trailer. For Return to Oz. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations. It's just a yellow brick. No, Belina, you don't understand. This was the Yellow Brick Road. You share with Dorothy Gale the shock of finding everything mysteriously changed. What's happened to everybody? And you'll delight with her discovery of four wonderful new friends who band together against a wicked queen and the dreaded Gnome King. This is the Oz you haven't seen before. And this is the Oz you'll want to visit again and again. From Walt Disney Pictures comes a whole new world of entertainment. Why don't we just fly back to Kansas? Return to Oz. So, Return to Oz came out uh, June 21st, 1985, directed and co-written by Walter Murch, which we should note, this is his only feature film directorial effort, but he's had a lot of experience prior to this as an editor and a sound guy, um, right. where he had worked on stuff like uh, THX 1138, The Godfather movies, The Conversation, had won an Oscar for sound and editing for Apocalypse Now prior to this. Um, and he apparently decided to come on to this after he'd had a meeting with Disney, who, uh, keep in mind, like, I kind of referenced this earlier, but Disney had the copyright for another Oz adaptation, because right. back in, like, the 50s, uh, Walt had tried to do a movie called The Rainbow Road to Oz, which would have starred a bunch of the Mouseketeers, like, the original cast of Mouseketeers, and apparently, like, that all fell apart, um, and it would never got made, but they still had that copyright in like the early '80s. Apparently, um, you know, Merch was a big fan of the Oz books uh, when he was a kid, um, and he decided to, you know, really make something a bit more faithful than the 1939 version. There had been other Oz movies even before the 1939 movie, of course, some silent films right. and stuff. So he uh, made this movie, which apparently had like such a weird production 
because uh, it went through like multiple different regimes at Disney to the degree that like it didn't come out until the Eisner Katzenberg era where they were like, we don't know what to do with this. We're just going to kind of <laughs> flop it out. And it didn't do very well at the time. And it was very much criticized for being very scary and very frightening mm-hmm. and very upsetting, despite being ostensibly aimed at children. Yeah, it's not duck, this movie. Everything you just said, though, is is very much true, I would say. Like, this movie is very weird and unsettling in so yes. many ways. I like the kind of contrast that this has with the original Wizard of Oz, which is like, that movie is very beautiful and ornate, and everything is like the just the most gorgeous sets and costumes that you've ever seen, um, and very lavish. But this is very dark and like dilapidated and everything's like crumbling and falling apart and it just it it has a a very interesting kind of aesthetic as opposed to the 1939 film which i think does help it because i think like as we'll talk about later when disney does another version of this it 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 doesn't go well when it kind of is worshiping that original 1939 version as much as you legally can right exactly yeah um but yeah, I mean, I, I had not seen this movie before. Um, right. And, you know, I, I'd heard things, I'd seen kind of some of, of the creature designs and stuff like that, and I just wasn't prepared for how just strange this movie is. I mean, like, everything about this movie is weird. Every, like, creature and everything is so weird and, like, very creepy and very unsettling. Like, I, I definitely understand why it scared young children (laughs) or even like before we get to any of the creature stuff like the opening of this movie she's in kansas and supposedly it takes place about six months after the tornado happened and so she's going off about oz and aunt em and uncle henry are like trying to rebuild the house but uncle henry seems in a very desolate state and he like very much leans on like oh i broke my leg and they're kind of hints of, like, maybe he's just, like, too depressed to even bother finishing the house. And yeah. on him is like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do with her. Maybe we should uh, try this doctor. So they take Dorothy to a psychiatrist who is very instrumental. Like, oh, we want to experiment on her with shock therapy. Right. But presenting it as, like, you know, it's going to be 1900. It's it's a new age where, you know, this is new technology we're exploring here. Like, it's that kind of thing. That's such an interesting sort of way to set up this movie. And it's also just so depressing. Yeah, incredibly <laughs> depressing. It's so sad. And poor Farooza Bulk just looks like very much like a child who, like, needs some kind of, like, comfort. Because she's like, yeah. but, but Aunt Em and Uncle Henry, I, you know, I went to Oz and there was, a, look, I found this key that has an O and a Z on top of it, right? And she's like, oh, this poor child, we have to get her electroshocked so she can stop having these fantasies. Yeah, I mean, and just the, the setup of that is so, already kind of like immediately puts you off of like, oh, this is not going to be the, the, the 1939 film at all. Right, and I, I like I like that it actually doesn't do a thing that another Disney version does, which is the black and white opening, trying to kind of recreate, you know, the, one of the greatest moments in cinema history, which like makes me weep every time I see it. Still, I, I like that it is more grounded and and not trying to just be, you know, because this is what forty six years after the Wizard of Oz, yeah, something like that. So like, yeah, I, I like that it isn't just kind of being this nostalgia, you know, just of the original, but it also, it's just so kind of disorienting where you're like, 
oh, I thought this was like a, a fun movie that has like, you know, it's about a another world of wonder and all of this stuff. And it, yeah, it's a weird setup for this movie. Obviously, that also messed with me when I was younger, because the thing is, I saw this as a child, uh, not when it originally came out, um, but I remember, I, because I was so obsessed with The Wizard of Oz, my dad at one point like took me to Blockbuster, and it's like, oh, look, there's another Oz movie. You might like this. He had, of course, no idea, because you look at the poster for this movie, it looks like fun and jovial, like, oh, they're all like flying in the air, and it's all it these is, new, it's a great poster. Right, characters and stuff like that. It'll be totally fine for a kid. And then I watched it, and... There's a specific sort of moment, like, I was already, like, off-kilter by, like, oh, yeah, Dorothy, for one thing, is not a 15-year-old pretending to be a 9-year-old. It's an actual 9-year-old girl with fruit as a bulk. Um, right. But also, like, the aesthetic's very different, and we're introduced to, like, oh, we're going to go back to the Yellow Brick Road, the Emerald City, but, oh, wait, the Yellow Brick Road is dilapidated, and then Emerald City is in ruins, and all of our favorite characters, like, specifically the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man, are stone now. All the residents of the Emerald City have been turned to stone. The Scarecrow's gone. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, where are the songs? Why aren't they singing? <laughs> yeah, it's not a musical. And, like, even the transition from, like, Kansas to Oz, which, like, in, in, in like I said, it's, it's that iconic shot from, like, the original Wizard of Oz. And in this, it is a lot more just, like, she arrives and is, like hmm, I think we're in Oz, but this doesn't look like what I remember. This is a lot weirder. This is different. And it, there isn't that same kind of, like, sense of of wonder in the sense of, like, oh, look at this beautiful new place. Oh, my gosh. It is just, like, look at this place. It's in ruins. and It's, like, falling apart. Yeah, and yeah. even, like, our the characters that we know are very different. Where, like, the versions of the Cowardly Lion, right. you see in Stone and the Tin Man as well. And I think, like, I, I watched an interview with Merch where he kind of explained why he felt, ultimately, people didn't really respond to it as well. In The Wizard of Oz, there's, because of, like, the songs and the fact that you have, like, humans in the roles of, like, the Scarecrow and the Tin Man, like, more humanoid bodies. It's like, oh, this is a bit more of, like, a facade and it's kind of, like, a bit more pretend. Right. Versus, like, you have an actual nine-year-old girl interacting with, like these animatronics and creatures that are not humanoid really in the slightest, even when they right. have humans inside of them, like controlling them. It's like, Oh, it's like TikTok, where it's like a guy who's like basically like curved over inside I of that saw, body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's like, it, I, I was, I was like, there has to be a person in there, but how does it work? Cause he's like, it's not like R2D2 where you could like, you know, fit someone in there. Like right. it, it's someone curled up in a ball and it looks so uncomfortable. And then same with, like, the wheelers, which, like, that also just looks like such an uncomfortable, like, costume to have to act in with, like, having wheels for hands. <laughs> yeah, and uh, particularly the main wheeler guy, who I want to shout out, because he was also, like, a trained mime who basically taught everybody who was, like, in a suit how to, like, do sort of, like, big exaggerated movements to make it oh, seem okay. like these suits were alive. Uh, his name's Pons Mar. He talked about the fact that, like, when you have some of these, like, sort of a mix of this puppetry and these actual people in suits, you gotta have to, like, train, basically, these people to, like, realize that, like, oh, okay, I have to move in a different way. Like, the wheelers, he was like, oh, yeah, basically, in order to move around like that, you have to use all the muscles you don't use to normally walk as a person. <laughs> and oh stuff God. like that. Which is crazy <laughs> to think. And that's what makes it all feel kind of unnatural. Like, basically, the wheelers, young me, terrified horrifying I mean, <laughs> creatures yeah 
it, it's that face that you see, which is like their helmet, I guess. Yeah. It is, and you see it like around a corner, like that. You know, you. It's so, it's so creepy. <laughs> I, I like. I, I can't imagine watching this movie as a kid because I. It would have scared the shit out of me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Truly, but I still remember at the same time, despite being scared by this movie, I was also deeply fascinated by it. And I think a big reasoning sure. why. I just got to say, like, this movie was nominated for visual effects, uh, lost to Cocoon, you know, natural. But um, at the same time, like, when I, I remember when I was a kid, I was just fascinated by, like, all these different creatures. I think it's one of the underrated, like, practical effects movies to me, which is the oh, way yeah. that you have, like, especially the different differentiation between, like, a TikTok, a Jack Pumpkinhead, the Gump, and all those other things. It's such weird fucking creatures. Even, like, Belinda the Chicken. Is like most of the animatronic when you see it, and it's right. astonishing. I mean, yeah, this is the thing of like, I, part of me is like, oh my god, what the hell am I watching right now? Because it's it's so weird. But like TikTok, who is my favorite character in this in of like all the the kind of side characters, is so like you you get a lot of close ups of him. Like the my my background, which is like the um when they first meet in that like secret room, and you're just like oh okay this you know it's a animatronic whatever and then you just see a f- like when they get to um mombi yeah princess mombi when they get to that castle and you see him like walking in the background and you're like oh wow this is like a full suit that they have like built and it looks incredible like it, it doesn't look like a like a costume it looks like a real metal <laughs> a stubby metal man <laughs> walking around Right, because you have at least the somewhat human movements of, like, his legs, which actually have, like, right. the person, like, moving around in them. But you have his little arms that could only be done, like, radio-controlled, and then especially his face with, like, the... I love that the mustache moves as, like, his lips. It's my favorite thing about him. <laughs> I love that his mustache moves every time. Um, I also love the, this shot of it's his, like, cap that he, like, kind of, like, can, like, take it off and on. <laughs> Like he, right, he like doffs it to Dorothy, yes. <laughs> and, I, and I think what makes this movie work a lot more, and why I still personally think it's a great movie, is the fact that, like, a Feruza Bulk, who I know you're not as big on child actors necessarily, usually, but I think she does a right. great job of being genuinely empathetic to these, like, weird monster creature guys who are, like... Right misunderstood nobody just you know she she realizes that like they need some kind of like love and protection like i love the bit when the the whole action thing with uh, uh tiktok where like he has a wind up for his action and a wind up for yeah. his thinking and that's how he's able to like move around and there's a point where he realizes like oh i can't move as like they're at mombi's place and dorothy's about to be like put up in that tower and implied to be like oh we're going to keep you up there until you're age appropriate for me to slice off your head so I can put it as part of my collection. <laughs> and she's like, you know, being dragged away and TikTok can't move. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Dorothy. I, I can't do it. And she's like, it's all right, TikTok. Nothing can be done of it. <laughs> I just like that. Right. She's, like, she's understanding of like, this guy can't move. She's not yeah. like angry toward him because of it. Right. And like, it is a, we- it's an interesting kind of contrast of like, you have Dorothy being very sweet and very nice to these, like these creatures that like, the, even as you kind of get used to seeing them, you're just kind of like, oh my god, what is this thing? <laughs> but like, I love like when um, when she meets like Pumpkinhead and like when she puts him back together with like the arm and everything, and like it's yeah, it's a really sweet moment where she gets to like yeah, be nice with these like 
creatures, but also like you get to see just the uh, just the effects of these creatures. Like I love like when Pumpkinhead like his arm, the way his arm like attaches, and she puts it back, and just all of that stuff. Yeah, which is there, there's an incredible amount of just tactility tactility to it, um, which is just it kind of makes it more unsettling too is is that there is a lot of tactility to it right but, even the fact that like when in that sequence where jack like initially stands up it's a puppet like standing up and barely being able to move and then when he's actually walking around there's a person actually right. inside of him but at the same time the movement is still seamless enough to where it's like nope that's this fucking pumpkin head guy <laughs> just right. got up this pile of sticks and a jack-o-lantern <laughs> just got up and is walking around <laughs> Yeah, and but yeah, I mean, like the 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 chicken as well, which is such a, a a weird addition to this movie, but is like you see it at first, and you're you can be fooled for just being like, oh, that's a regular chicken. But then, yeah, the the transition from the actual chicken, I can't believe I'm saying this, to like the animatronic is so like it's seamless. Like I, you know, it I if you're not looking for it, like me, like I couldn't tell which scenes were a real chicken and which was just an animatronic because it's very lifelike in a very weird way where like the mouth is moving and the blinking and everything. It's it's so insane. Yeah, and I'm curious, how would you feel about then bulk with like this movie, especially considering she's this is her first movie? she's ever done and she's gone on to be in other things she's in the craft and uh, stuff like uh bad lieutenant port of call new orleans as right. well um but how do you feel about her here because like i said you're not a huge child actor fan generally i mean it, it can be very hit or miss but i i tend to find kids very annoying <laughs> in a lot of movies um <laughs> but no i mean like it, it's a very difficult performance to do because you're not acting with people you're acting with like you're not acting with people and you're not like you mentioned like the wizard of oz has the, the 1939 film has like the scarecrow and everyone beat they, they look like people in costumes but it's so I, I imagine it's so difficult with like just these creatures these animatronics and she does a really great job at being like an a, a you know a, it's a great version of dorothy from like um to kind of base it off of like judy garland's performance but like I think she does a great job, and I think it's you feel the like humanity and the like, yeah, just her like sweetness to these characters is really po- is really palpable when like she's acting with like you know the uh, TikTok. He's just a a, a stubby C three PO. Like you know, it, it it's a really great performance though, and I think it doesn't really fall into any of those traps that I generally find annoying, which I think is generally like precocious children, um, which is a really kind of welcoming thing for this movie because it is just so weird. Yeah. I think some of that, you know, upsetting stuff that we got early on, I think helps feed into like her sort of issues with her performance in general, because like so much of the earlier stuff is her like interacting with humans and having a distance versus right. her, like, general, like, when she's early on, when she's talking to Belina, the chicken, before she's ever able to talk or anything like that, she seems to have much more of a natural back and forth, once again, with a thing that doesn't talk and isn't that humanoid. And I think that really works that kind of, like, awkwardness around other humans makes it once she ends up, like, in Oz, where it's pretty important to point out that, like, all of the humanoid creatures in Oz are villains. 
You have the Wheelers, you have Mombi, right. you have the Gnome King. They are all villains who are out to get her. Versus the circular, you know, the spherical uh, <laughs> C-3PO guy is like someone that she has much more empathy for. Like, near the end of the movie, when she just, like, hugs him and he oh, cries, yes. it's, like, yeah. so sweet and so investing. And she, once again, she can make you believe that, like, I am so invested in this fucking robot man with his mustache. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, like, it's a weird thing, I think, with TikTok specifically, like, because he is a a robot, and yet, like, he has a lot of weirdly expressiveness to him in a lot of ways, right? Like, he is a character, and it's a very difficult thing to, like, one, make him feel like a character because he's a, a robot man, and, I like, yeah, having him and Dorothy's relationship... Yeah, it, it's a it's a very interesting thing that this movie pulls off with its visual effects, which are like really impressive, and especially like one we haven't talked about yet is the the rock face, not the gnome king, but the the the, the rock that has a face on it. Right, there's sort of like which, a henchman of the gnome king that sort of like right. pop up and have like shout out to Will Vinton, great stop motion guy, the guy who created the like M and M's ads that we see currently oh, okay like his studio right, was initially okay. responsible for that and he did a lot of other great claymation stuff but yeah i just love the expressiveness of those faces like when they report to the gnome king and it's like <laughs> sir dorothy's here and she has a chicken and stuff like that. it's such a weird yeah. like very angular mouth movements mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it's one of those things and like i mean the first time you see it you're just like oh the the rock has a face on it okay and yeah, every time you see him report where it's like that red like wall, it, it's so creepy, but yet like really, really fascinating to look at because it's like, how did they do this? Like it's, you know, it's, it, it's the kind of thing with all these visual effects where you're just like, oh, wow, there's so much craft put into this where like, obviously this is all pre like digital and CGI that like, it is like so impressive, the craft that goes into just like making the face of that rock look really interesting. And I loved when he popped up again and had to report to the gnome King that the fucking like chicken was in the mountain or something <laughs> like, yeah. And I forgot until I rewatched it this time that they kind of set that up earlier with like, in, the gnome King is played by Nicole Williamson, um, who also appears as the psychiatrist earlier. And there's a bit where right. he introduces like during that psychiatrist stuff, like he introduces Dorothy to the electroshock machine and he says, look, it has a face on it. It's got these two mm-hmm. eyes. And those, like, sort of geezer into, like, hey, we're going to use this to shock you so you'd stop having fantasies about us. And it's, like, kind of, like, laying the groundwork for later on we have rocks that have faces and all this other, like, weird shit. Right. And yet it does feel like a moment of, like, you know, I, I was a kid who, like, hated going to the doctor and, like, the doc, you know, getting shots. It does feel, that feels like a genuine moment of, like, a doctor trying to calm her down of like, look, it has a face, but it, like that doesn't help. <laughs> it has no. a face. <laughs> it makes it even worse, honestly, because it's like, oh, this thing is sensing it and it wants to like hurt me. <laughs> it's when he like moves the thing and he's like, and what's this? It's his tongue, and I'm like, that is really creepy. Please stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, but I mean, we should talk about our villains a bit because I think the villains that we have, we mentioned the Wheelers, who are all like upsetting. Um, even when they die, which is another, like, great upsetting bit of this movie, when, like, they go into the deadly desert, and you see that, like, oh, if you touch the sand, you become sand and, like, crumble away. 
It's a really great effect, though, when they, like, crumble into the sand. Like, it's like a sandcastle, like, falling apart. I, I love it. Yes, but uh, we also have Mombi, um, who right. is played by Jean Marsh, at least in her normal form that uh, is, like, through most of the movie, who also plays the nurse that we see earlier, who's also wearing, like, an upsetting, just, like, her dress even looks, like, gothic in a really upsetting <laughs> way, like another yeah. version. But also a shout-out to Sophie Ward and Fiona Victory, who played two other heads that, like, Mombi wears at a certain point. Uh, this was the thing I remember that gave me nightmares as a child, Mombi, who was, okay. like, such an upsetting character, admittingly, because it's like, oh, when you're introducers are, oh, she's, like, you know, sort of a version of, like, Glinda or whatever, right? She's going to be, like, a good witch, maybe, who they encounter. It's like, oh, and you learned real quick, like, nope, she's not. Because she's like, oh, here, let me show you my gallery of heads as I place one... <laughs> on my shoulders and my body is headless briefly um but yeah it's it's such a great example of like that's an amazing effect too like the body yeah and like all the different heads that are in the cabinet displays it feels truly like movie magic stuff yeah and especially like the it's the shot when she's holding the head you know what do you think of like all my heads or she says something like that and it it's it's a just a like thing of like oh wow yeah it's it's movie magic it's like how did they do that how did they create this this shot it looks so weird and like yeah even her just like putting the head on like the, like the like the Darth Vader helmet is it, yeah it's one of those like movie magic moments of like just like especially like 80s visual effects where you're just like it's creepy but it is so like fascinating to look at and like to figure out how it's going on and how it's working. Um, like even now, I can kind of see it where it's like, oh, all these cabinets are like women that are just like putting their heads out while their bodies are like probably like behind this like curtain that's there or whatever. But right. it still just feels so seamless, and especially the bit where Dorothy's like sneaking around trying to find the little life powder thing, and then she wakes up the Jean Marsh head. And she just starts bellowing, like, Dorothy Gale. And then her head, headless body rises up out of her bed. Yeah. It's so creepy. And yet, like, I love the design of her castle, which is, like, ornate, but, like, in this weird, like, crumbling kind of way. Like, everything's kind of falling apart, but it is still this very beautiful, like, palace. And, like, that hallway specifically of, like, where all the heads are is, like, incredible. And all the mirrors and stuff like that, yeah, which right. we should say, it's not technically her palace, because we do kind of get hints that she maybe took this from somebody else, and we see right. a little ghost girl in a mirror, another very charming image that wouldn't terrify a child, <laughs> like at all. Um, but but yeah, I just, I love her in particular, where she has this sort of like false regality that makes it seem like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm the sort of queen of this particular dilapidated area who, like, bosses around wheelers, and I love uses them as, like, a big chariot, <laughs> like, when she goes through her tunnel and shit, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I, and I love her performance as well, because it's, it is very, again, and none of this movie, like, despite all the creepiness and stuff, that, that aside, like, it isn't doing the 1939 version, and I like her performance, because, yeah, it feels like she's, yeah, it feels very nuanced, and also just, she's very menacing. Like, she's just very, like, so menacing. And, like, even as the nurse, like, that, that like, black dress she's wearing, where it's, like, it looks like a funeral, like, like dress or something, is, like, very menacing. And the way she talks to, like, Dorothy at the beginning is, like, yeah, it, it, it just, she's a scary woman. 
But there's also a sense of desperation there, which I like. Like, yeah. when, especially when Dorothy isn't around after a certain point, which is like, you gotta chase after him. It feels <laughs> less like a, you know, like, because obviously Margaret Hamilton is a wicked witch in the original movie. One of the great, like, evil kid movie performances of any right. sort. There's a reason why she also terrified children for, like, decades afterward. But it's a very different performance where she's very confident and there's, like, no sort of bluster at all in her performance. Like, no, I'm gonna get this kid. And I'm going to, like, mm-hmm. put her up in my tower, and she's going to not be a threat to me whatsoever. Versus Mombi has an inherent, like, oh, fuck, I got to, like, get this kid back or else everything's, like, screwed. Because, of course, she's under the Gnome King, who is just <laughs> another brilliant sort of, like, meld of, like, Nicole Williamson's performance sometimes. Where, like, initially he stop motion when we see him. Great stop motion mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. And, oh, then yeah. He tr- and then gradually as, like... He sort of becomes more human. It turns into Nicole Williamson and all this great, like, elaborate makeup. There we go. Yeah. He just changed his background, <laughs> everybody, uh, listening to Nicole Williamson version of that character. And I like the fact that with him, he also has a lot more of, like, a manipulative vibe. I think is even a bit different yeah. from, like, any of the other sort of villains we've had in, like, The Wizard of Oz, where, like, there's a point after, like, the setup is that all these different people who Dorothy has encountered brought along on her journey have to go into this big ornament room and try and see if they can locate the scarecrow in there. And they have to touch an object and say, Oz, and then he'll like, pop up instead of being an object anymore. Um, and there's a point where it's just Dorothy and him. And he's like, why did you come all this way for like a scarecrow? I don't, it feels like this is just like a bad dream for you, right? You can leave. I have the ruby slippers on, right. which he mm-hmm. wears those ruby slippers very well. He's very protective <laughs> of them because it stylishly they like, looks perfect. They the way they poke out under his like little robe when he's like, "Look, my ruby slippers." <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, even the, but, like, shout out to whoever did that feed acting. Incredible, where it's just like right here. Look, oh, like almost displaying them like that. But he gives Dorothy an out of just like I can send you back home, and you don't have to ever think of this place again. And it's right. like this great sort of devil temptation thing that also provides like that kind of difference that you're talking about from the Wizard of Oz, where it's like he gives her a way out. It's not like you're going to be stuck in here forever. It's like you can leave. Just you won't mess with me ever again. <laughs> and I do I do like, though, the way that this kind of like this set piece in particular very much like at least initially kind of mirrors the when they first get to the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz and they meet Oz with his like the light show and all that stuff. There's the stuff where the gnome King is like pointing and like fires coming out of like the hole. And like also have to mention that the doorway they go into is like the rock hands, like pulling the rocks apart. Kind of yes. <laughs> like it looks really, really great. Um, but uh, yeah, I love the way that this, it mirrors that. And yet it, there is that sort of like sinister, like thing where he's like, basically he's like i'm gonna kill all your friends first and then you but yeah he gives her that like kind of out but it it's very menacing and it's very weird and his design is maybe the the creepiest thing in this movie to me in my opinion like it's especially the close-ups when he's like smoking his like pipe is like so creepy and so weird because he's like I don't know, just the the texture on his face where he's like rock texture, kind of. It's it, ugh, it really creeped me out a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Though I would say the creepiest thing to me, even now, is still beyond Mombi or Gnome King. All respect to my main man from the first movie, but in this movie, 
the scarecrow looks like terrifying. <laughs> and he's like, in theory, the least terrifying because it's very close to like the illustrations. If you look at it, the old L. Frank Baum books, it looks very close okay. to that design. But just the fact that like he has like his eyes and his mouth that like sometimes move, but sometimes they don't, depending on the shot. It's very unsettling. <laughs> right. And he's got like, like his head is like, it's, it's clearly like some sort of like helmet type of thing going on. Right. But his eyes are like very wide. It's very, it, it's, it reminds me of like a, I don't know, some sort of costume, like a theme park where it's like, oh, this is kind of unsettling and creepy, even though it's supposed to be this like, hey, here's the scarecrow from the movie. Like, you you know, you love him. Kind of like if you see yeah. the modern Mickey Mouse now that does actually like blink and it's his mouth moves. Right, yes. Really weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like, it's a weird thing where I, like, like especially comparing the scarecrow to like from the original Wizard of Oz, where it like it looks like a person who like that is like a, an effect or like a, a makeup uh, from that movie. That still I like I look at that and I'm like, wow, this looks like incredible. I, I think that like original scarecrow looked really wonderful, and what they've done to him here is just so creepy and weird. Um, and I, his crown, which is kind of like it's like a like a. It's, like, bent at the ends. It's very, like... Right, almost looks like it exploded from something. <laughs> right. Just, yeah. And I think that's a big credit to also the fact, like, with a lot of these creatures that we see, it's a lot of, like, there's somebody sort of in a suit, but there's also people off to the side doing, like, the uh, sort of, like, radio-controlled stuff. Like, I watched a behind-the-scenes right. doc that was from around the time, and you see a lot of people just, like, radio controls moving around to, so, like, the... You know, the eyebrows move, and then, like, the, the mouth can move and stuff like that. Which, shout out, one of those guys is Brian Henson, who directed our previous film. Right. Uh, who is uh, the guy who does the head puppetry and also does the voice of Jack Pumpkinhead. Which is, like, apparently he was, like, 20 years old doing this. This is his first, like, thing not attached to, like, anything his father did previously. Um, sort of job. And I love his sort of, like, weird demeanor as Jack, where he feels like, sort of, he's a massive tall guy, but he's a child. In particular, right. he calls Dorothy mom. It's kind of sweet, even though it's also incredibly sad, because it's like, oh, my other mom disappeared somewhere, so can you be my mom, even if it isn't true? Yeah, it, it's it's very, like, sweet and innocent, and yet, it, like a lot of this movie, is a little, like, weird, and a bit, like, off-kilter. And yet, yeah, like, what he asks her, like, I don't know where my mom is, can can I call you mom, even though you're not my mom? It, yeah, it's... It's really sweet. And I like also that he's expressive, but, like, his mouth never moves, but he still has, like, expression in his head. Like, there are certain points where his head will, like, kind of morph upward when, like, he's excited. Yeah. That effect is amazing, to make, like, the head even, like, squash and stretch like that. Yeah, he's got, like, a really long, like, neck, too. It's, like, really like a skinny neck, too, where, like, mm -hmm. it was a thing where I was trying to figure out, like, how is... there's a per There has to be a person in there, but, like, how it's... Yeah, it's a really interesting, like, this movie, I think, exists in a really interesting, like, you know, time when, like, visual effects are really, like, just, like, the craft is really there, and there's a lot of, like, that exploring of, like, we have, how can we do all of these weird effects with these, you know, practical elements, because we have to do it practically, and, yeah, it's such an impressive thing about this movie, while also being creepy. <laughs> Yeah, shout out to uh, Lyle Conway, who is um, uh, was the guy who like designed all the puppets and various different creatures, and also a year after this would do uh, the effects work for Little Shop of Horrors, 
which I think is where you get right. that's where I think the sort of the way these characters feel so lifelike it really works. And he also does a lot of the animatronic stuff and the voice of the Gump, who we haven't really talked about. But I do love it's just like this creature that they create so they can escape that is like this deer-like head that's mounted on the wall that they put onto a sofa that has like wings in the form of like palm leaves and then a yep. room for a tail. And he's just like, oh, looks like I'm alive. I don't know how long I can stay together, though. Right. And they even seem to not entirely be sure like what he is necessarily. Like they're kind of I don't know. I feel like it feels like they treat him of like they treat him like a friend, obviously, but they are kind of just like, yeah, we made you. Like you're the, you're you know hello. Like well, yeah. There's literally a point where like the Gump asks like, "What am I?" And Dorothy's just like, "You're just a thing." <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, and like it's just. I mean, the logic of 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 him, where like you said, that's how they built him, and then that's how they get. That's why they need the um. The powder of life, is that what it's called? Right. Which they pour it on him and he comes to life. And it's, well, she has to say the magic words that are on the back of the directions, which I also love. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's it's very weird and so but I think I like that that sort of like fantasy kind of childhood logic, right? Like with which it has, right? Which is like, yeah, you put a head on a thing, give him some arms, and then you created a thing, right? It's like it's a really wonderful in its logic but it it like everything else is it's weird and unsettling and like he is like every time you see him it's very it's very creepy <laughs> but i think that adds something also to like some of the like uh, i heard merch talk about when he was doing this interview that i watched um he did such a great job of explaining that like i think that just adds that sort of like all these elements that we're talking about of like all the unsettling nature of it and the weird kind of like slapdash child logic. It adds kind of this nature of like, we're not talking down to like kids when we have right them do any of these things. And even like that, the stakes of it being as like high as they are makes it a lot more investing. Cause like, if you're watching these other Oz things, a lot of it feels like it's just kind of like aping on, uh, you know, a, a worse version of the Margaret Hamilton Wicked Witch character with the villains. And it feels right. like there aren't really any stakes actually there. We're just kind of like going on an adventure and there's vague threat, but not really any threat. As opposed to this movie, it because everything feels so like real, but also creepy, it makes you feel more invested to where it's like, Dorothy's got to get out of this shit. This, this world is out to get her. <laughs> she needs to get right. the hell out of here. <laughs> but I, I, I love it because it also it gives her stakes in terms of like she has to save her friends, right? Like she has to stay to save her friends, but she also really wants to get the fuck out of here because it's like, everything is like horrible. Um, and I, I really do love the side, like, because I was initially hesitant with the beginning section of this movie with her and like the hospital and stuff. I don't know. It, it as much as I say that I don't want a movie to just sort of, ape on the nostalgia of the 1939 film i did feel like i missed the kind of the wonder and the beauty that was there but i love the idea of her returning to oz and not finding it obviously how she you know was there last and having to kind of save it but not necessarily save it in this like massive kind of thing like like an Oz the Great and Powerful, which we'll get to that a little bit we'll later. But um, we'll get to that. <laughs> but it, it it is like it's an interesting sort of 
the way that the, the, the movie kind of makes her go on this journey of like having to save Oz, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, I, I'm, I'm interested in that. even though, um, it's very kind of uh, disorienting at first to kind of get into this world that is very much different than like the 39 version, obviously. Um, but yeah, it works. It absolutely works. And you feel like just the stakes of it. You feel like the tension of it, like just throughout the whole thing. It's, it's, yeah. Um, well, it also helps that like that earlier stuff, as I grow older, I realize how like integral that is to kind of setting up the dilapidated version of Oz is not too dissimilar from like, Kansas in her world mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, right. we're trying to like come back out of this horrible tornado that happened and trying to rebuild our home, but we're all in this kind of like depressive state. It feels like it's this weird parallel, and especially even like how the Gnome King does that whole thing of like you can forget all about Oz and go back home is very reflective mm-hmm. of like the that his Nicole Williamson's other character is like, we want to get rid of your fantasies so that doesn't bother you here in the real world. The movie's basically mainly about how Dorothy has to realize that, like, my dreams are integral for me to, like, live. My imagination, my sense of wonder is integral to making my real humdrum life for it to survive and thrive. I have to have a bit of that, like, imagination and that wonder at the same time, especially, like, as a kid. She has to be able to have that. And obviously, you know, seeing this nine-year-old girl go through all this is traumatic, to like, especially when I was watching this at like a younger age and even her, it's like, oh fuck, this is a kid having to do all right. this shit. It feels like, once again, the stakes are so high with that, but at the same time, it makes like that eventual ending where she gets to have like her happy home and Aunt Em and Uncle Henry aren't fucking depressed as hell. It's all because like she is kind of like almost this like guiding light for them because she has that jovial childhood wonder still because she saved all her friends and us. Yeah. I was a bit weary going into this, into the the ending of this, when, like, after they save Oz and defeat the Gnome King, of, like, oh, are they going to do a thing where, like, she gets to stay in Oz and, like, rebuild Oz with all her friends? And no, like, I, and I like that. I like that the it still hinges on her wanting to go home, which is, like, a, a I mean, like, it's so such a beautiful little sentiment and, like... I I love that she yeah gets to go home but isn't forgetting her like yeah that childhood imagination like you said it's it's it really lands I think which I was a bit nervous about going into it yeah because like I've heard that from some people where it's like oh when the Wizard of Oz why does Dorothy even leave Oz and go back to like that shitty fucking hellhole of Texas <laughs> of Kansas like why even bother going back but yeah I like the fact that it seems like she wants to spread that kind of empathy that she has for, like, these other creatures to, like, her actual human aunt and uncle. It's her kind of learning right. to have that kind of empathy for humanoid people after a certain point. Um, but, I mean, there's there's some other stuff that, before we get too far into the ending that we haven't talked about, like, the whole Gnome King unraveling that happens after yeah. Dorothy gets in there, realizes his plan, and starts, like, solving it. I love that he has a bit of that confidence where she's just like, oh, I'm, this is a fun game. You know, it's going to be fun for her to do this. And the moment she starts getting shit right, he's like, you let her out. <laughs> you fuck well, yeah, this I, up for me, Mombi. <laughs> well, because Mombi comes to him and she's like, you got to deal with her. She's on this. She's on her way. And he's like, I know. Like, I know. I'm, de- I'm dealing with it. Like, calm down. Yeah, don't worry. Come on. Come on. Chill out. Yeah, I got this. And like, then, you yeah, fucked up, but I'm doing great. 
<laughs> right. And then, yeah, she starts to figure it out. And you can see him just get, like, you know, seething. And then he starts, like, just letting it all out. And then he he becomes what is Thomas's background, which is um, a rock lava man <laughs> thing. <laughs> I don't know how to describe what he is. This, just this, this amazing abomination of a thing. <laughs> That just rises up. Especially, I love that too when, like, this ornate room, which I love the design of that, like, ornament oh, yeah. room. And how mm-hmm. it looks like just a big, like, fancy room covered in all these different, like, great, uh, like, vases and stuff like that. Um, but then the moment he realizes, like, oh, they're winning my game, I have to completely destroy this room and have, like, hell open up, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I w- all I could think when, like, it showed his mountain, I was like, oh, it's Mount Doom. Basically, it's right. It's basically Mountain Doom, and yeah, he like starts to try to eat them. <laughs> Nursery Dorothy is like, oh, but uh, you you said we solved everything that we could. I'm tired of playing games, <laughs> and yeah, he starts to try and like eat Jack. Like he picks him up, and I love that too. The little animation, um, but of course, Belina is inside of Jack's head, which I love that detail. <laughs> and like she <laughs> hid inside because there's this whole recurring thing of like the chicken. The chicken is, like, the the key to all of this, evidently. Yeah, oh my god, there's a chicken? What? Like, yeah, it's... <laughs> right, they set that up a lot, and it's like, I wonder what's the reasoning, and it's just Belina, like, inside of Jack's head, is, like, so scared that she lays an egg for the first time in a while, <laughs> apparently, based on the earlier Oz stuff, um, and the egg falls into the Gnome King's mouth, and uh, it makes him crumble. Apparently, it's a severe egg allergy of some sort. Look, as someone who's lactose intolerant, I get it. He's just like me for real, but... <laughs> Right, I mean, if you ate an egg, you would also, like, crumble like this. Like, if I had dinner with you and you ate an egg, it would just be like, eggs are poison, and then your eyes yeah, would over. I would just repeat poison over and over again. <laughs> and I'm like, check, yeah. please. <laughs> I mean, it, it is like the the water from, like, the original Wizard of Oz, right? Where, it, like, it is just this, like, weird thing of, like, oh, water's the solution? Okay. But it's so, like... It never feels like it's out of place necessarily in this movie, which is so strange and so bizarre where you're like, oh, of course, the egg. Yeah, the egg is poison and it killed him. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) And especially the way he crumbles apart is also like, once again, it's our villain being defeated, but it's not just the Wicked Witch. I'm melting. What a world. It's like this guy fucking like decomposes in front of them. (laughs) Especially I love his little minions who are claymation start coming up. It's like, oh, were they going to attack? It's like, oh, no. Oh no, he's gonna die, and then they also like shrivel away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. I, but I, I love his design at the end. Like here, I love the animation, which is just so. It's like great, like stop motion animation. It's so weird and so interesting to look at. Um, and it, this whole segment is just like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> Truly, yes, and it's it's so interesting, especially when you, you know, consider, like, all this stuff that's happened, like, all of this, like, horror that we get, like, throughout this movie. And then uh, the movie ends with, like, a great parade where, like, they go through Oz and everyone's happy. Everyone's back. It's great. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's, like, almost like the Don Bluth or, like, 80s kids movie style thing. This happens a lot where it's, like, oh, all these horrible things happen to our little kid protagonist. But uh, he got out of it. So happy ending. Everyone's great. <laughs> right. It's very funny the way that this movie, obviously, like, because in her departure, she, like, says bye to everyone, like, TikTok and everyone. And then, like, 
I like the way that, like, the Cowardly Lion is, like, handled, where, like, he's almost an afterthought, even though, like, you know, Dorothy has this, like, previous kind of connection to him, but we, obviously, we can't reference that necessarily, but, like, yeah, it's, I, I like the way that this kind of whole segment feels, and I, lo- I love the, the design of this, like, I don't know, like, this the palace that they're at. It's so, it's gorgeous, and I love, like, all the... The, the citizens of Emerald City, the way that, like, their costumes and everything. Yeah, just really incredible. Yeah, there are a few that kind of look like the earlier movie, which I, if I had any criticism about this movie is that, like, I wish it went full stop into we're not going to reference the stuff from the earlier movie because right. it's kind of like a weird half-and-half half sequel. That Yeah. Like, because especially, like, the Ruby Slippers is a great example of that because in the book it's the Silver Slippers and they had to literally, like, pay MGM a fee to get, like, the oh. ruby slippers in there. And I almost wish they stuck with, like, the silver slippers. Because having ruby, it draws more attention to, like, oh, yeah, the classic ruby slippers that we knew previously. And even, like, right. the close-ups of Dorothy with the slippers on, having to click her heels and stuff like that. They do, I think, if they just got rid of those few little mentions, I think it would be a lot less sort of, like, tied in some people's mind to, like, that original movie. Right. Also, another another kind of, another Oz movie I watched was The Wiz which that has the silver slippers, which I also, I, right. that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Why, <laughs> why it was yes. in, in that one? Yeah. The Wiz, by the way, I think a much more terrifying movie. <laughs> than this one. The Wiz. I, I watched the Wiz today as well. And it's another, it's kind of my, my feelings on it are kind of similar to this of like the production design and the costume design, especially are so incredible and wild in that movie and so insane and it's a weird movie i really like that movie i I don't know how you feel about it though i think there's like elements that i really love about it and then there's stuff that feels like interminable to me um i think particularly look i love diana ross but getting her to play dorothy i think is a weird choice considering like even in like the whiz broadway show like it's supposed to be a kid dorothy and she's like pushing 40 i think at that point and it's like this is weird (laughs) Yeah, it is weird. I don't know. I, there's something I, I really find fascinating about that movie. Um, and it's also just, it's very weird and interesting to see, like, Diane Ross and Michael Jackson and, like, Richard Pryor and, uh, you know, um, Iman all be in this movie. It's a weird, weird movie. Um, also, that's directed by Sidney Lumet and written by Joel Schumacher. <laughs> right! That's It's... <laughs> Yeah, so bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. I I really like it though, but I I mainly just think the the visuals of it are so interesting and are very again like that movie is very separated from like in some ways separated from like The Wizard of Oz, right? And it is so like just such a wild contrast to that movie and all the production and everything. Um, which which reminded me of this movie in some ways, just how like you know it, you don't have to adhere necessarily strictly to the wizard of oz even though it is this like monumental film this like you know but i mean that one also i think has a similar kind of like aesthetic it's playing to that's not too dissimilar from the wizard of oz in terms of like what i was talking about earlier like this is like pretend we're having a big musical and it's like still supposed to be jovial even though you have like killer trash cans and killer trash cans killer like subway pillars Pillars, which is right so crazy yeah um yeah, and the songs, which are I think are, are uh, I think are written by Quincy Jones. Um, the newer ones in particular, yeah. 
Yeah, um, which I, I I like some of them, but yeah, that movie's weird, but also has kind of a similar like dilapidated kind of rundown aesthetic, right? Which is kind of again contrasts the more ornate and lavish uh, style of the original, which I yeah I find interesting. Right, seventies New York, so yeah, rather similar, <laughs> yeah. yes. <laughs> But yeah, you know, while we're even talking about that movie, we might as well just, we've addressed it sometimes, but the most recent Oz movie, the Oz the Great and Powerful, which you also watched, apparently. I did. I, I didn't see it. I, have, I hadn't seen it since. I, I missed it in theaters. And I kind of dreaded watching it a little bit because it's, it, it's long. It's two hours and ten minutes. I had not heard good things about it, um, even though it's directed by Sam Raimi. And it's a really bad movie. Um, yep. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess if I have anything positive up front to say about it, um, I think Michelle Williams, shockingly, is great in it and is an actor who, like, I mean, she's one of my favorite actors and is so great at being in, like, bullshit, right? Because she's also in, like, Venom. She delivered the immortal line, I'm sorry about Venom. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But she sells it so much and she's really great in this movie but I think it's really bad. <laughs> I mean, just James Franco is maybe the worst casting decision I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I can't think of a worse person to play that character. And his characterization of it is so weird and not great. Especially when you um, get to like the original idea was it was developed as a project for Robert Downey Jr., which makes way that more makes sense. Way more sense. Way yeah, more that's, sense. That's great casting, right? Because um, you want somebody who's kind of like a fun con man kind of thing. Versus, right. like, if you saw like if you saw Robert Downey Jr., it's like I'm instantly charmed. Versus a James Franco, it's like this guy's skeevy. I don't trust him. Right. You see right through him. Right. Exactly. Right. And like just the way that this entire the whole movie is about like jealous women. Like really. Like really. Like this is what we're gonna do. Is this is how we're gonna treat our female characters? Particularly, like, I would say, like, Mila Kunis is also, I think, an equally terrible casting. But at the same time, I just, unlike a James Franco, I have no empathy for. Because he looks like he doesn't give a single fuck about anything. (laughs) It's really, like, the most apathetic performance I've seen (laughs) in a movie. Uh, Versus Mila Kunis, like, trying so hard. And it's like, oh. She is, yeah. No, this isn't. This isn't working. Mila, I'm sorry. And, like... Look, I know that this is a movie that was like big for 3D, and I clearly I didn't see it in 3D, and it is a really bad looking movie. Yeah, it is just really ugly, which is like a, such a shame because I think Sam Raimi is of course a great director, and this, the movie shot by Peter Deming, who shot like Mulholland Drive, and like Evil Dead Two, and it, yeah, but it it's so hideous, and it like. It weirdly enough looks like a lot of movies look today. It looks like it was shot in like the volume. It has that like right. really muddy digital like thing to it. Zach Braff as the, the the flying monkey character who looks really bad. Well, it's a weird movie where like the CG looks bad, but also the few the makeup bits we get, particularly like Mila Kunis's version Ooh. of the witch. Where it's like, it looks as close as, once again, that movie is trying so hard to be like, we are a sequel to that earlier movie, but we can't legally say it. And like, right. all the differences are just enough to make it look uncanny. Like, particularly, the weird thing with like, her version of the Wicked Witch is like, she has like, this puffier design, just because of like, yeah. Kunis's face. And then also she has like, cleavage? It's so weird. 
It's, it's just weird. Like, I don't I don't want to think like I don't have the wicked witch fetish. I don't know what you're trying to push on me. <laughs> yeah, and like there are elements in this movie that are like oh I, oh right, Sam Raimi directed this where like you get those canted angles, you get like we like crazy cinematography, like you know, he does the Raimi cam a few times. But like those the the elements of it that are Sam Raimi feel very like disparate from like what the Wizard of Oz is. Right? Because like I don't know. I don't think of those, like, Sam Raimi's style and The Wizard of Oz being in... They're not in the same, like, conversation, I don't think. Though I would argue, if you let him do a Return to Oz style movie... Sure, yeah. I think that would totally fit. Like, if he had done a version of, like, this movie. Which, of course, Disney, who made Oz the Green powerful as well, is just like, no, 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 you're not getting anywhere close to that. (laughs) Right. But the movie's trying to be this, like, blockbuster, right? Like, it's trying to be, like, a blockbuster that is a, a... kind of a sequel to the wizard of oz it's very much like using the nostalgia of that movie but like it's so long it's so boring and again it's just really ugly looking which is what i'm so curious for the next sort of version of oz we're getting is that wicked movie which i've seen the wicked broadway show and that's also a show that tries to sidestep around as much as it can to being like an actual prequel to the wizard Mm -hmm. of Oz with like a lot of its design stuff. So I'm very curious how they're going to work with that. And also how, you know, a modern big budget fantasy musical is going to potentially have a lot of these same kind of muddy aesthetics that we're talking about, even though we're a decade out from Oz the Green Powerful. It feels like sadly that we're maybe not going to be able to diverge away from that, especially considering it's a two parter. Yeah, doesn't yep. make any fucking sense to me because that musical should just be like I don't know, like a two hour movie. <laughs> you can just fit right. it all in. Yeah, although it, it, and it is it is directed by uh, John M. Chu, so you know could be interesting. But um, yeah, I, I I don't really have any. I don't know anything about Wicked really. I think I, I it's never been. You know me. I'm not I'm not a big musical theater person. But right. I'm very yeah. I'm very curious to see how that's gonna do. But yeah, Oz the Great and Powerful is a really bad movie. And again, it, it's it's the kind of thing we talked like we were talking about of like you don't have to like because even that movie makes a lot of like subtle. I'm, I'm using air quotes subtle references to the original, where it's like, oh really? Like you're just making that kind of reference to to the Wizard of Oz? It's yeah, it's a really bad movie. I still remember the saddest of like felt for Sam Raimi is there was a bit where someone was talking to him about like the only time I've heard him reference anything about Oz the Green Powerful post it coming out was he was doing an interview I think for the Nerdist podcast and they brought up Oz the Green Powerful at some point and all he had to say was I did the best I could. That's all he could yeah. say. It was so such a bummer. I mean, it is a movie you you watch it and you you really feel bad for him because like he really is trying and there's elements there there are certain sequences that like where you you wake up where you're like, "Oh, oh wow, this is like kind of interesting in some way." And I I like the sort of like um final set piece of that movie being like the whole like you know, creating the big magic trick and all that stuff, which I, I kind of like, but it it's a really long movie. Yeah. Oh, and I like Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell being the, the, the guard is funny. Right. I guess. The winky guard's it's funny bit. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, but in contrast to someone else we should feel bad for, uh, Walter Murch mm-hmm. with this movie, before we get to final thoughts on Return to Oz, I'm curious, 
how do you feel about his direction here? Do you think he could have, like, done other interesting work? Do you wish he had made other movies after Return to Oz? I, I do, actually, yeah. I mean, the, the, the visuals of this movie are, are really great, like we talked about. I think that that comes through with, like, directing, right? Like, I think he, and he's an editor, right? So he, a lot of the kind of seamlessness of the visual effects, I feel like, are are him, right? Like, he he really does, like, direct this movie very well. And, like, this shot, which is, like, my, my background right now, which is the the kind of shot of the of the gnome king and dorothy is like a really wonderful shot and there's a lot of like really great matte paintings like early on in the movie and stuff like that yeah i i wish he had directed more movies because like he's also just a great editor obviously he's edited some great movies he also um he edited tomorrowland or he was a he was an editor on tomorrowland right which i part of that interview i saw uh was him basically being used as a sacrificial lamb for like he got fired from it disney was unhappy with what was going on with the movie. Right. And so they were like, we have to fire somebody to set an example for Bird about what needs to happen. So they got rid of him to show, like, this means business. We're not fucking around. You gotta, like, fix this shit. And keep in mind, that's the only time he's been fired off of a movie as an editor. Yeah, I mean, like, again, I, I don't even love Tomorrowland, but that is a really fucked up move. Especially for Walt, like, I mean, that, that movie came out in 2015. At this point, he's, like, a legendary like, figure in cinema. Like, he's edited some of the great movies. Like, that's, yeah, that's... I don't know, to Disney, up. he's still the guy who made Return to Us. And they tried to fire him <laughs> off this movie. That's a very crucial thing. It's like, there was a point where apparently he got kind of sick, and at, it was at the same time where Disney was like, we don't like this footage, we're gonna fire him. So George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola literally went up to Disney and said, like, don't fire him. Like, we want our friend to have, like, his role to the degree that, like, Lucas said, like, if you're unsatisfied after he comes back, I'll finish the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that sounds really fucked up. And like, but I, I mean, I I do love uh, Lucas and Coppola kind of coming to his aid, though. That's like also keeps in line with like them coming to like Kurosawa's aid. Like, I love hearing like stories about them just like using their clout at the time to just like help people out. Um, and George gets a special thanks credit at the end of the credits. For oh, this does he movie. really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I appreciate it, Walter. Thank you. Thank you. Because <laughs> um, Gary Kurtz also worked on this movie. He was a producer right. on it, and he's also like worked with like George Lucas and stuff like that. So, yeah, in- weird, interesting connection to George Lucas. <laughs> now, also, you can TikTok is at the Lucasfilm Ranch. Really? He's apparently like there's a big garden area, and he's kind of like the central kind of okay. uh, statue piece. Let's That's get there. some flights to the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, look. I need uh, to go we, visit Lucas, my best friend. If TikTok. anyone has Lucasfilm uh, <laughs> like connections, we would love to do that tour. <laughs> we are so down to do that. I need a picture with my, my, my new best friend, TikTok. He's great. You know, in this modern age where kids are obsessed with another TikTok, That's he's true. the real TikTok. That's true. Every time they said, like, TikTok, I kept think, like, thinking, like, oh, boy, this is so weird to hear this now. <laughs> And it was so weird, like, why isn't TikTok flossing? Why isn't he doing TikTok dances? He, he's clearly so mobile, he could do that. God. That's how Disney brings it back, and brings it, like, for the kids, is, is to get TikTok, and then make him, make him do some dances. Sure. Because that, that, that'll totally work out. Totally will. Put TikTok on TikTok, everybody. Um, but yeah, you know... Let's go into our final thoughts, then. Any final thoughts, any last-minute things you want to mention about Return to Oz, Brian? Well, one thing we didn't, we didn't mention, really, either of the, the actors who play her, Uncle Henry, 
and Aunt M, who Aunt M is Piper Laurie, of course, yes. rest in peace, um, who, of course, like, love her on Twin Peaks. Um, and and then, Carrie and all that, yeah. Right. And then Matt Clark, who I'm not as familiar with, but are, are you are you familiar with him? He, I know he's in Back to the Future 3, but I'm not sure what else he's in. Um... No, yeah, I'm not as familiar with him, but I do like the two of them. They feel especially that that kind of like sadness we got earlier. It feels very like much on their faces, like that earlier scene where she's just talking about like, "Oh man, I guess we got to get take her over to that doctor." And he's like, "Why are we taking her to a doctor we can't pay?" And the whole conversation about like, "Oh, my sister's going to lend it to us. That's charity. All this other stuff." Right. It feels like an actual, once again, very sad. Like, a little bit of just, yeah. like, oh, this this family's in desperate needs. Especially the bit where, like, you see Matt Clark, like, sitting in the unfinished house, not, like, moving or anything as they're, like, leaving. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's yeah. so, such a bummer. <laughs> but but the ending, when he runs to her and, like, they hug, and it's a really beautiful moment where they, they reconnect. Um, and especially with Piper Laurie, when she, like, hugs her, it, it's such a beautiful moment that, like, yeah, just kind of really nails that like the the human elements of the story right and even like the little coda where we do get a bit of we haven't mentioned much but ozma who's sort of the character we right. kind of referenced earlier the ozma who was in like the books and stuff like that is like the princess of oz um who's been kept in like the mirrors and also plays like the little girl that we see earlier on that gives dorothy the jack-o'-lantern which is very cute also a very weird thing where like that actress was actually british and she's dubbed over by uh, Walter Murch's daughter. Oh, oh, uh, who, who had like that's a, sweet, right? Uh, Emma Ridley is her name, uh, the young actress. But yeah, like that whole thing where she even like comes out like at the very end of when she's in Oz before she can sends Dorothy off. Just like you can come back to Oz anytime you want. I'll keep an eye on you. And then she shows up at the mirror at the end, which is a sweet little bit. Um, right. Then it's just like, oh, don't, don't, don't tell on M that I'm here. And then, like she takes the mirror down and stuff like that, and then Dorothy gets to have, you know, some fun outside with Toto, who's also here, which we yeah. should mention, like, Toto was, like, <laughs> teased at the beginning, and it's like, no, Toto doesn't go on this adventure. He gets to stay behind and howl sadly <laughs> as Dorothy goes off to the hospital. <laughs> I like that little ending that feels, once again, like, this is the happy ending earned. Like, she gets to be a kid who gets to go out and, like, play with her goddamn dog. <laughs> outside and like yeah. the house is actually finished and everything it feels like life moves on in kansas but at the same time she has that connection to oz still i like that kind right. of there's a bit more of like a balance in her life yeah i i mean yeah again like i said earlier like it is that thing of like she has to go home right like that is like you know that's it has to happen but like it, it also just for me like I, I like that it is her like not forgetting right like that sort of scene in the mirror is like her not like, she's going to move on, and, like, life goes on, like you said, but, like, she will remember Oz and her friends and her time there and the lessons we learned along the way, et cetera, et cetera, um, which I love. Right. And, once again, that happy ending is so much more earned because we went through hell earlier. <laughs> we literally went to the bowels of Gnome King's hell and got out of it. Also, another shout-out for something. Like, David Shire does the score for this movie. It's a yeah. beautiful score. I love yeah. how like lush and it kind of goes from being like tragic and upsetting to like very beautiful and has that kind of ennui that really makes sense for this movie. It's a, a wonderful score. Yeah. Hell yeah. I agree. But yeah, you know what? Let's go into final thoughts, Brian. Final thoughts on Return to Oz. 
Yeah, I mean, look, this is, I mean, this is the atypical episode, and this is um, a, a very strange movie that I, I, I literally didn't really know anything about it going into it, other than it was a real messed up movie. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it is a very dark and very strange movie, and yet, like, there is that humanity there that we've talked about throughout the entire movie, and I think, like, uh, Firuza Balk, like her performance at the core of this is really important and is very good. And just the way that she has to act against all of these animatronics and people in suits and all, all of that stuff is great. And I, I mean, the visual effects of this thing are really incredible. I mean, like, a, you know, once you get past the very unsettling nature of like a lot of these designs, you just start to look at them and go like, oh my god, these are incredible creations and inc there's incredible craft here. And uh, as well as the, the, just the production design and all of that stuff is so interesting and weird. And like, as much as like you've talked about as well, like this movie scaring you as a child, like I, I don't know, it, 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 there is still a childhood kind of imagination that this movie has which of course like is inherent with like the oz like you know with that world but yeah it, it's such a strange movie and it feels like a strange movie especially for disney right to make something this crazy and weird and like it only comes out of like the 80s which is a time when they're not doing so great necessarily but yeah yeah it's weird it's a weird one <laughs> yeah and i think that's something we didn't really mention as much like you, you were talking about how this could only come from like a specific era for Disney. This is what a lot of people call the what Walt would have done era where right. post Walt Disney dying in like 66 until around like, you know, when the Disney Renaissance really kicks in, in like the late eighties, um, there's sort of this weird period of like, what are we going to do? And I think a lot of those movies, um, quite frankly, are kind of unwatchable. Like, say, the original Peach Dragon, I think, is, like, a terrible movie. Or, like, the Apple Dumpling Gang. Or there are even interesting ones that are kind of failures, but curious, like The Black Hole, or Watcher in the Woods, or uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Like, these are all, like, the darker, sort of, like, late 70s, early 80s period Disney movies. I don't think most of those are, like, extremely successful, um, as compared to, like, I think this is easily the best of that era. For sure, for me. This just feels like there's... Because at the same time it has, like, all that creepiness, it also has a lot of heart and warmth that I think goes underrated when people talk about this movie. And it feels like merch is so invested in, like, I want to do justice to, like, these original books. And I want to be able to make a story that I'm not talking down to the, any kids when I'm making it. Like, any kid that watches this can believe in, like, the terrifying stakes of, like, being on a big fantasy adventure, even though, weirdly, it's so simplistic. Like, we haven't really talked about the fact that, like, right. the basic structure of it is, like, she's in the psychiatrist's office, she goes to Oz, she goes to the Emerald City, she goes to Mombi's Castle, and then over to the Gnome King's Mountain, and then the story ends pretty much. There's not, like, a huge amount that really happens. Because even with, like, the Wizard of Oz, you go from, like, oh, here's this part of the forest where the Scarecrow is, and then where the Tin Man is, and then where the Lion is, and there's, like, whole sequences devoted to meeting these characters, versus we meet TikTok at the Emerald City, or everybody else inside of, like, Mombi's Castle, and then we go see the Gnome King. <laughs> like, it's not right. a huge amount that happens, like, structurally, like, from plot beat to plot beat, but at the same time, you feel like you've gone through such a massive adventure because it's harrowing, truly. 
just encounter like Mombi and the Wheelers and all these other things. And yeah, I think it's why it's definitely I think one of the more underrated Disney movies to me. Because at the same time, it has all that terror, it has all that heart that really mixed in, and it feels genuinely investing. Like, I felt so sad when she had to leave, and she hugs TikTok, and he starts crying. <laughs> he cries. Emerald tears. Um, but at the same time, Dorothy's also, like, she's a very empathetic character, and she's resourceful. She realizes the whole green thing with the different objects yeah. and stuff like that. Once again, Merch just knows that, like, I can't make this feel too safe. Because like, kids are, like, smarter than that. Kids don't yeah. have to, like, be talked down to. Which is just a thing that, like, a lot of Disney movies are guilty of. In terms of just, like, we're gonna, like, dumb this down for a kid because we don't trust their intellect. As opposed to the better Disney movies, or even something like this, knows that, like, we can have, like, all this danger and terror, but just know that, like, she can get through it. And she can have her friends alongside her, her weird misfit toy friends who aren't quite humanoid. <laughs> and that makes the happy ending work all the better. And yeah, that's why I think this one definitely deserves a lot more love beyond just like, this movie fucked me up. It's like, yeah, sure, it did, but there's still something underneath all of that, like, scary stuff and that's like, surrounds it. It feels more like it evokes a lot of, like, the earlier Walt Disney things than, like, some of these other movies from around this time that kind of just use the scariness as, like, their one-trick pony. I find, like, some of the scary sequences in this recall some of the scarier sequences in, like, Pinocchio or, like, Snow White mm -hmm. with, like, the trees and stuff like that. It right. feels like it has that same sense of, like, terror and danger that also has a bit of heart and warmth underneath it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, so let's get into our weekly segment, Between the Lines. <laughs> So every episode, Brian and I uh, recommend another movie that's related to some degree to either the movie we're talking about or could apply as another entry in the A3A typical Disney kind of thing. And uh, I'm going to be starting here. And my pick is one that was produced by Disney, though released under their Touchstone banner. And is a movie... R.I.P. to a real one. Uh, a label that literally was only resurrected to release stuff like Strange Magic. The George Lucas, like, <laughs> Lucasfilm movie they got along with Star Wars. Uh, but this is from 2000, and it's a movie I know Brian has seen, and it's my favorite movie from, I think, a great director. Uh, I have 2000's Unbreakable from M. Night Shyamalan. Which, oh, yes. It's weird to realize that the whole factor of, like, M. Night Shyamalan's rise to power was partially because of Disney helping along with, like, the whole story behind The Sixth Sense is so fascinating when, like, I've been reading that Disney War book, and there's a whole thing where the guy who greenlit uh, The Sixth Sense and agreed to let M. Night Shyamalan direct the movie got fired by Michael Eisner. <laughs> it's like, we can't allow this guy to direct the movie. It's gonna, this is gonna be a huge fucking failure. And that guy was unemployed when it was making millions of dollars in, like, August of 99. <laughs> So after that, uh, Disney uh, made Unbreakable, which is 
personally, my favorite Shyamalan movie. Um, if you're somehow unaware, this is a story of David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, who is the seemingly average man uh, who survives a horrible train wreck that kills thousands of people. But he's the one survivor. And he starts to realize, wait a minute, I've never been sick before. I've never had like really any illness or anything. And it's this interesting superhero origin story done through just the real tragedy of like, well, if you were a superhero in our actual world, um, it would feel kind of like a curse that's like upon you that you're able to like survive horrible blasts and stuff like that. And um, he along the way encounters um, this guy named Elijah played by Samuel Jackson, who by contrast has this uh, disease that makes his bones very brittle and he is called Mr. Glass as sort of a moniker. They call him Mr. Glass. Yes. Um, It's sort of a a name to tease him. But it's a whole movie that's basically about, like, the superhero origin story, but through the prism of, like, our natural world and how if someone were to, you know, be introduced as, like, oh, you're a survivor of this horrible train crash and you had no marks on you whatsoever, no blemishes, no, like, cuts or scars, it would draw some people out of the woodwork, like Elijah, which is a brilliant performance from Samuel Jackson. Oh, yeah. That isn't, like, him screaming, motherfucker all the time it's like a very it's one of his more nuanced performances and it's also an amazing performance from bruce willis that's very like this and sixth sense just show how talented that dude wasn't playing drama especially like in a low-key sense Mm -hmm. and it's got like you know amazing like robin wright is also great and the spencer tree clark as their son is so good it's this great movie about literally broken people uh realizing that they can maybe have some kind of life uh, together, even though, you know, there's all this, like, supernatural circumstances around them, they still just are trying to, like, get their marriage together, him and Robin Wright, or, you know, all the stuff around, like, Elijah, and, like, realizing what his whole plan is, it's so brilliantly done, it's so extremely well-directed by M. Night, where there's so many great moments of, particularly, like, Bruce Willis having this other power to be able to, like, sense people and, like, realize, like, oh, their backstory and, like, what they were doing previously, their sins of sorts is, like, so well-directed, so well-put-together. Um, an amazing James Newton Howard score. I was gonna say, the, yeah. The fucking rocks. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's such a great movie. It's my favorite Shyamalan movie. And also, the weird start of a trilogy <laughs> that would later happen. <laughs> yeah. not, mostly not with Disney, which is also very weird. Right. Like, where Universal does split, and then they just were able to get, like, he has the character rights to David Dunn, so he's able to put him in this. It's... It's so weird how that fucking happened still to this day. Uh, but yeah, tremendous movie. One of the favorites, especially a very weird movie for Disney to put out. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're just, you just, you say like, Disney made this. Like, Disney made this movie. They they Michael made- Eisner era Disney made this. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. It's a masterpiece. It is like a superhero movie, like you said, but it's, again, it's very grounded in our real world. And also just... I think M. Night is one of the most empathetic storytellers, especially in, in you know, in the past, like, 20 years. He's just, mm-hmm. or 30 years, like, basically, he is, like, such an empathetic filmmaker. He really loves people and really understands people and wants to, like, understand how people work. And, and just the, like, I, my favorite scenes in the movie are with Bruce Willis and his son, like, just really beautiful drama like i i just their the thing with the gun is one of the best like scenes shamlin's oh, ever gosh. directed it's like yeah. so much tension but so much sadness in there and then of course when he the, the newspaper and just shh, 
The, well, yeah, oh, that was tears. what I was going to say. Unbelievable. Yeah. It, it's a, yeah, it's a masterpiece. It's a great movie. And yeah, also, yeah, weird that it started this trilogy. And I I think both of the other movies are great as well. Um, but there is something very special about Unbreakable. Well, Brian, what is your recommendation? Yeah, so my recommendation is 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 a Disney movie, a Walt Disney movie, released in 1999 uh, by by a filmmaker named David Lynch, and it is The Straight Story, which I had seen back in like high school when I kind of discovered Lynch, and I had the the realization, like I think most other people do, of like, oh, he made a Disney movie? <laughs> oh, it's about a guy who goes on a trip on his lawnmower to visit his brother? I don't know. What, what, what is this? Based um, on a true story? Is that like weird right. phantasmical <laughs> nightmare vision? <laughs> right. And it's kind of released like in between Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive in his career. And yeah, so it is a story about a an elderly guy named Alvin Strait who learns that his brother has had a stroke and he decides that he needs to go visit him and reconnect with him. They haven't spoken in about 10 years. He's living with his daughter, played by Sissy Spacek. He can't drive a car because he doesn't have a license because he's older. His eyesight is, is bad and all of that. Um, and so he decides to go on his lawnmower. And he he sort of sleeps in like a trailer in the back. It's like a makeshift trailer. And he... The, the film is is mostly him sort of encountering various people and having conversations and just discovering more about him, but also more about strangers. Like there's a really great scene early on on his trip where he meets this woman who he finds out is, is pregnant and they, they learn things about them, about each other, which is just this movie is heartbreaking. I, I mean, I remember just kind of going like, oh, this is like a fine kind of movie and i watched it last night and it broke me i think this is a absolute masterpiece i like in really up there with like any of of david lynch's other films like mulholland drive or like twin peaks firewalk with me like it is an incredibly human movie um which i think is something that can often get lost with lynch is that like he's weird he's got like eccentric characters right like you know but he's he's very good at human drama and he's he's a bit of a sap right he love he loves the wizard of oz he loves like jimmy stewart and stuff like that so he he has that side of him and this movie is just a incredibly beautiful movie about like about aging and about getting older and also about family and about like I mean, the the relationship with him and Sissy Spacek, which I won't give it really much away because I had forgotten that aspect of the movie when mm-hmm. I watched it last night. And it, it just, like, broke my heart. It's so incredible. And, like, I mean, Sissy Spacek, who is, is playing someone who is, I, I guess, sort of on the spectrum in some way. It's never really specific. But, like, right, yeah. it feels so respectful and so like human which i was not expecting obviously but because that's kind of something that can go very wrong but particularly in a 90s movie exactly um yeah but you there's also great cameos from like uh, a few twin peaks actors in here and it's i mean the score by angela badalamenti rest in peace i i had forgotten how unbelievably lush and gorgeous it is while also having like uh 
a kind of more country kind of twang to it at times. Um, yeah, I, I really love this movie. I was really blown away by how great it was. Um, and yeah, it, it's one of his best films, which, you know, is really saying something for David Lynch. But yeah, you've also seen this movie. What, um, what do you think about this movie? I have, yeah. This is one of the more recent, like, when I was checking off, like, the blind spots of Lynch. This was, like, this and Inland Empire were, like, the last two I had to catch up on, right. pretty much. Um, I'm like, oh, I can watch it on Disney Plus right now. Right, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and um, I remember at the time still thinking, like, I really liked it, um, but I, I would still say it was, like, one of the lesser Lynch's, which is not saying anything bad at all. Right, yeah. Like, the only technically bad David Lynch movie, I would argue, is Dune, and that still is, like, interesting and it's weird. Fascinating movie, yeah. Fascinating <laughs> movie, right. As opposed to this, um, despite being, like, much more simplistic and much more straight, as it were, um, is still feels very grounded in, like, his sensibilities at the same time, that kind of... Like you mentioned, that human element of it, the kind of odyssey thing that makes him very tied to, like, Wizard of Oz. It feels kind of like it's this guy going on this journey, which also just a shout-out. Richard Farnsworth is yes. the main actor. Amazing. One of his last performances. Uh, a great, weird career for that, too, dude. He was, like, a classic Hollywood stuntman, and then later in life had gotten, like, a lot of uh, more on-camera roles, like, in Misery prior to this and stuff like that. But this is kind of like his, his swan song performance shortly before his passing. And I think it does such a great job of, like, having those Lynch kind of ties, but also being just this very quiet, introspective movie, like you mentioned, about aging. The last sort of scene of this movie, when oh, yeah. he encounters his brother, who I won't spoil who it is, but is one of the Lynch regulars, <laughs> and, like, the perfect person mm -hmm. to play that brother character. Like, that, that brief conversation they have, and then him looking up into the stars, in just that Stargate, before, like, the and credits start feels once again very lynchian in terms of just his fascination with like the unknown of like what happens after you know we leave the mortal coil it's all still there while you know none of the like more extravagant like wacky things that we see in his other movies happen while also having like there are very funny and interesting characters that he meets like i right. love like there's a scene that is in a store where he's like what do you need what do you need that 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 grabber for and oh yeah like, grabbing <laughs> <laughs> there's yes. a lot yeah there's a lot of still like funny like i think lynch is is very funny when he wants to be but like it more comes across in like those secondary characters that he meets and just like them being very like funny like normal people but yeah the the humanity of this movie is the most powerful part of it and it like it, it made me just fucking weep <laughs> like it's so beautiful yeah a very underrated movie as well, um, and very atypical for Disney. Right, and it, atypical for David Lynch in that it, it's not that weird. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's uh, go ahead and repeat our titles then. Uh, my recommendation was the 2000 M. Night Shyamalan film, Unbreakable. And I had David Lynch's 1999 film, The Straight Story. And now we got to do our thank yous and everything. We got to head out of here. So we want to thank some people like uh, Burial Grid for our music for the show. Purchase his music at burialgrid.com. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Find her at mishkyle96 on Twitter. And thanks to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash cinema number two letter, where for just $1 a month, you all get to listen to bonus podcasts that we put out. Uh, like around this time, we would have, uh, you know, put out our uh, big 
Disney YouTube commentary conversation where Brian and I talk about a big YouTube playlist of stuff. And also, uh, before the end of the year, in a couple days, uh, we'll have out our uh, big review roundup where we talk about a bunch of the big December releases, a bunch of the Oscar things and stuff we'll be talking about. And also, you get to vote in polls for certain movies we cover, which stay tuned to the very end here where we're going to talk about a poll that will be coming out shortly after this episode releases uh, for our next season uh, which we'll announce in just a bit. Um, but, you know, that $1 a month really helps out and helps keep the lights on, and we really appreciate it from all our patrons currently and would appreciate, you know, if you ha- love this show at all, if you like listening to it, uh, definitely consider becoming a patron and helping us out. But um, you can find us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the other social medias, at Cinema Number 2 Letter. And you can find me specifically at not the who's Tommy on Twitter and Letterboxd, and I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. Yeah, and you can find me on on Twitter as well, sometimes at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three. Uh, or you can follow me on Letterboxd, which, you know, catching up on all those 2023 movies that, that I missed. So, you know, get, gotta get that 2023 list up to date. Um, yeah, follow me on there. And uh, for more of this show, please uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting platform that you listen to us on. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network. And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like the, all three scenes of this show that have happened so far. And all the old double-edged, double-bill stuff is all there. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight for people. The free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility, especially as we are stuck in the uh, dilapidated Emerald City. Turn to stone. <laughs> I need people to hear our voices. We need Dorothy Gales out there. I know us. the wheelers are coming. All the wheelers are coming for us. Oh, God. Well, now, let's tease Brian. Uh, This is the end of the Disney season, so uh, Mm -hmm. we'll be taking a bit of a break, uh, but we'll be coming back in the new year, on specifically January 23rd, for season four, uh, which we're tying into uh, the Oscars, which uh, the nominees will be announced on that particular Tuesday. We'll be going through like that in-between point between the nominations and the ceremony. Uh, and uh, we'll just announce here that uh, the season four specific topic uh, is very broad in terms of it's any movie that's won at least one Oscar. <laughs> that's what we're going with. Not yep. just Best Picture winners. It can nope. be you won like a makeup award, you won a special effects Oscar, you won, I don't know, sound mixing, but not sound editing. You're applicable, right. baby. <laughs> but we are not doing like honorary Oscars, like none of that. It has to be no. during, you know, uh, uh, how would you say that? The, um, a, a competitive Oscar. We have to thank be like you. winning yes. a competitive Oscar, yes. We'll uh, be announcing those titles. You know, we'll have a little bonus episode about a week prior where we'll announce the specific movies we'll be covering. And, uh, yeah, we should at least announce that one title will be chosen by our patrons. There will be a poll uh, the day after this episode drops, so on the 27th of December. You all uh, who are patrons will be able to vote for our M for Masterpiece choice, which uh, we decided on uh, the two choices will be the 1997 Gus Van Sant film Goodwill Hunting versus the 2007 Tony Gilroy film Michael Clayton. Both 
very interesting movies to talk about interesting like careers in terms of their directors and also both uh, were their major awards that they won uh where goodwill hunting won a screenplay but also best actor for robin williams and then right. michael clayton's only oscar win was for tilda swinton in the least tilda swinton role <laughs> yeah yeah um and also an interesting thing of like michael clayton for me at least is michael clayton's a movie i've watched only re- only up until recently and I have not seen Goodwill Hunting in a very long time. It was when I saw like back in high school, and I have not seen it since. So either choice is interesting. I'm in a similar track as well um, with that. Um, I'm very curious to revisit either Goodwill Hunting or Michael Clayton, depending on what the patrons pick. That's uh, for you all to decide, though. Uh, like I said, that poll will be going up the day after this episode drops, and it'll be up for a couple days. So you'll be able to help us curate this particular uh, list of films. So one of those will be up to the patrons. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll announce officially which one won come uh, our little bonus episode. They'll come out before the first episode drops. But until then, everybody, the Disney season's over. So uh, that means we're out of the mouse's hair. Get the fuck <laughs> out of here, Mickey. We're not dealing with you anymore. Enjoy your flop era, motherfucker. <laughs> Happy 100 years. Anyways, how's how's the box office doing? Right, yeah. <laughs> how's Wish doing, motherfucker? <laughs> um, but yeah, until then, everybody, um, we're off to see The Wizard, or maybe more The Gnome King and his horrible <laughs> fucking stone creations. Uh, we're stuck in Oz. But, you know, some fun guys. We like TikTok. We like hanging out with them. <sighs> What He's a guy. cool dude. We got to wind up his action, though, in his mind, or else he'll just go crazy. So we got to do that. Goodbye, everybody. 